ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is where we're going to be at today as we continue through our series in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm excited to jump into chapter 15. Um, Chapter 15 is one of those chapters that I personally struggled with a lot because we could have turned this into a mini-series. Chapter 15 is jam-packed full of stuff. And so we're really just going to scratch the surface of this. And I want to encourage you that there's a lot more in there than what we're going to be able to cover today. All right. So we're going to go over the entire chapter today. First Samuel chapter 15. Have you ever had a moment in life that was a really big deal, like a critical moment, and you had no idea you were in the middle of it until afterward? Like you're, you're in the middle of making the decisions, you're in the middle of going through it, and it kind of just doesn't feel like a big deal. It just feels like a normal day. It just feels like normal situations. And then later on, you reevaluate and you realize that actually was a critical moment in my life. I think we have a number of those. If I think about biblically different moments like that, it's like when Abraham and his wife Sarah were trying to figure out how to have kids and they couldn't because they were barren and so they decided to have a surrogate child through Hagar. They thought this is just kind of the way things go. This is the way that life works in our culture and so we're just going to have We're going to have a surrogate child through Hagar. That's just kind of the way that things go. And little did he know that that seemingly insignificant decision in their time was a a decision that would have ramifications for all of human history even today. All the turmoil in the Middle East goes back to that decision. Crazy when you think about it like that. that. That sometimes we can make seemingly insignificant, seemingly small decisions that have huge, huge impacts. These moments test our character and they reveal how desperate we are for the Lord's presence, for his providence, for his provision, and his protection. That's what these moments do in our lives. Now, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is a critical moment in Saul's life, although he is completely unaware of how massive the consequences really are. As he makes these decisions, he doesn't really know that God is actually giving Saul his final exam. And if he passes the test, then he has the opportunity to move forward in a different way, and yet he's going to, he's going to fail the test. And up till now, what we've seen in Saul's life are small cracks in his life. I've tried to point them out as we've gone through different things in Saul's life to say this may seem like it's not a big deal, but it's actually a bigger deal than it seems to be as we've looked at it. And chapter 15 is going to show us that these small cracks are actually massive canyons in the character of Saul's life. Now, God's at work in things that we may estimate as not really a big deal. But he's at work in the middle of those things. All the little things are often indicators in our lives of big things that are actually taking place. Now, chapter 15, God's judgment, what we'll see is that God's judgment comes to uh, an entire people as well as to an individual. That's what we're going to be seeing. And as he does this, they, they seem to be sort of loosely connected concepts, but they actually both come together in receiving God's judgment because of this thing. They rejected God and his way. That's why they receive judgment. They rejected God. They rejected his way in favor of their own way. So here's our big idea in 1 Samuel chapter 15 today. It's this, that rejecting God in his way does not put you outside of his sovereignty. It puts you under his judgment. This is a thing. This is a concept that a lot of our culture just doesn't get. People think, I've rejected God. Therefore, I'm my own God and I can do whatever I want. That's just not true. Thinking that God doesn't exist doesn't cause him to not exist. 
Uh, Just because people don't want to be under God's rule doesn't mean they are no longer under God's rule. And, And so we've got to grasp this idea that if I reject God, if I reject his way, then it doesn't put me outside of his sovereignty. It doesn't put me outside of his rule. All it does is place me under his judgment. So we're going to break this section down into three parts today, piece by piece. It's a, it's a whole chapter and it's sort of a longer section, so we're not going to read it all together. We'll read it piece by piece. The first one is verses 1 through 9, Saul's foolish rebellion. The second one, 10 through 23, Saul's final rejection. And then the third piece, 24 through 35, Saul's false repentance. Let's pray and then we'll break, break this down together. Uh, let's go before the Lord. Father, we come before you today thanking you for the opportunity to open your word, to be able to give our attention to it, to be able to uh, place our eyes upon your scriptures. God, thank you for such a privilege and such an honor. And we pray today that you would have your work among your people and those who are not yet your people, that God, you would cause us to come under your rule and to not reject your way. Lord, would you comfort those who are afflicted those who have a soft conscience toward these things, who would, who would uh, um, uh, sort of overreact in some ways in, in, in a need of repentance that is, is too much for them. And God, would you afflict the comfortable, those who think that they're just fine and really actually have major things going on in their lives? Lord, would you, by your spirit, you know us, you know where we are, you know what we need. Would you minister to us? Would you cause us to see you for who you are and to be transformed into your uh, image by your glory, by your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're just going to jump into this because I've got way more content than I have time to be able I mean, I could keep you guys here, but I'm pretty sure the moms would just start leaving because it's Mother's Day. So uh, we're just going to jump right into it. All right, so number one, our first idea here in these three parts uh, of this is Saul's foolish rebellion, verses 1 through 9. Look at verse 1. It says this, Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Here we have sort of a, a transition that's taking place in, in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. It says that Samuel comes to Saul and he has this word from God. Some time has passed since the el- el- elements, since the events of chapter 14. In chapter 14, if you remember, uh, Jonathan and Saul are in the middle of fighting off the Philistines, and then it sort of ends with this uh, synopsis of some time passing in Saul's life where he's growing, he's defeating all his enemies, all these different people are in positions of power, and uh, Saul is fighting against the Philistines. And God sends in this time, as some time has passed, God sends Samuel to go to Saul with a very specific mission with a very specific thing, and it's, very, it's really emphasized in verse 1. The whole thing of verse 1 is to say, Saul, you should really listen to this. 
And I find that, that when I'm in, about to go into some uh, things in life, some stuff in life that's sort of a big deal, God tends to do this. He tends to kind of say, hey, you should pay attention to this. Now, whether or not I respond to that and I listen and I actually take heed to that is one thing, uh, but the fact that God is pretty faithful, uh, fairly um, consistent in saying, hey, you should listen to this is something that I found in my life. And he says here, he's reminded, hey, remember, I anointed you king over, over my people, over God's people. And then he says, listen to the voice of God. God has something that he wants to say. In verses 2 through 3, we see that God wants to pass judgment on a people group called the Amalekites. They're, they're, it's called Amalek there. The Amalekites would be the people group. And it's going to be a complete judgment. Everything and everyone is to be executed. And this, this is sort of similar. It harkens us back to the time when Israel entered into the promised land. When Israel came into Canaan, this is one of the commandments that God said to Israel as they entered into the promised land. When you come in, you need to, you need to destroy everything. Don't, don't, don't make uh, any kind of pacts with these people, uh, but you need to be able to... Uh, to just take over everything. Uh, and it reaches back not only to the idea of when Israel came into the land, but it actually reaches back further to the times of Moses. Amalek, what, what Amalek did, and what we're about to see why, God has a reason uh, for all of this. He, he says that he, uh, in verse 2, uh, I'll punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him. And so he's hearkening back not just to the times of when Israel came into the land, but also the times of Moses, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. That's when this happened. This is chronologically 400 years earlier. All right, this is a long time. 400 years earlier for us is back to the colonial days before the U.S. was a nation yet. Okay, like you've got you've to reach way back in your memory to think back to some of those times. And God says, hey, remember this happened? Now I want you to go and execute this judgment. And you're, you might be thinking, that's kind of wild. What, what is going on with that? Why is that taking place? Well, God gives them reasons. Uh, because The reason for this is because they ambushed Israel. Uh, you can write this down and look it up if you'd like to. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. This is where God tells us about how he's going to pass judgment on Amalek for this. And in that section, what you read is how God says, the reason I'm going to completely wipe out this people group called the Amalekites is because not only did they attack Israel on the way, but they actually, the way they did it was, was so backhanded, it was so dirty, it was, it was such a terrible thing that as Israel was traveling and as they're traveling by foot, these, this massive group of people, a couple million people moving along, there were some people who were not as strong as the others. There were some people who maybe were sick. Maybe they just were, were weak for whatever reason. Maybe they were older. Maybe they were younger. And they were straggling toward the back. You can kind of imagine that. If you've ever done uh, taken a hike with your family members or you've ever walked somewhere, typically there are some who sort of straggle and there may be a, very, uh, a lot of varying reasons as to why. And what we're told is that Amalek targeted them. He, they, that they didn't even come at Israel like uh, as if to, to, to attack them in a way that had any sort of integrity, if you want to say it that way. But they attacked the weakest and the most vulnerable for no other reason but to perpetuate violence and to steal their stuff. 
That was the only reason. And so God says, these are a vile people, and I am going to completely annihilate these people from the face of the earth. David Guzik says it like this, God hates it when, strong, when the strong take cruel advantage over the weak, especially when the weak are his people. God promised to bring judgment upon the Amalekites for the vicious way that they preyed upon the weak when they were strong. But, but why now? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I, I understand that. Why didn't God have them do it then? Why now? What, what's going on with this? Well, I think there are at least two reasons why, the, why now is the time. Number one is that God is going to use this as an opportunity to test Saul's obedience. An opportunity for, for Saul to be able to follow through on the things that God would tell him to do. Saul, I'm going to give you a, a mission. I'm going to give you some things to do, and I want you to complete them all the way. I want you to fulfill, to fulfill this, fully go into all of this. And secondly, I think the 400 plus years is uh, because, uh, because God was giving ample opportunity for the people of Amalek to repent. That, that's exactly what took place earlier when God did not uh, have uh, Israel come and take the promised land right away. They stayed in Egypt for 400 years, and that was giving ample time for the people of Canaan, the people of the promised land, to repent. And you know what happened? They didn't get better. They didn't get better. They, they got worse. So the people of Amalek deserved that judgment then, and God gave them years upon years upon years, centuries to change course. And not only did they not change course, they got worse and they got worse. It's, it's very much like the way you see the course of things in our culture, in our society. We don't get better as time goes on. That's just not the way that it goes. The longer that uh, a people are together, the long, longer that a nation is together, uh, things go worse. Things go badly. That, that's just the way that, uh, that things go as people. We don't get better, we get worse unless Jesus intervenes. Unless the Holy Spirit changes us and causes us to become saved. And so God wanted to give them opportunity to repent, but they did not. They became more vile. They became more evil. As you think of this, and you're thinking about God saying to his people, I want you to annihilate everybody, you're, you're probably thinking, that's crazy. That's harsh. How can that be my God? And, and the reason you're thinking that is because you're disconnecting the idea that God is right to judge. And you're, th you're probably thinking that these people were a lot like you, that they were just having some barbecue in their, their house as they were mowing their lawn, and then here comes Israel to just murder everybody. That is just not the way that it was going. These people were so vile and so evil, they were literally murdering one another. And so God intervenes in that and says, no more, I'm not going to allow this to happen any longer. You see, Amalek is a picture of the flesh, when I say the flesh, I don't mean your skin and bones and your body and your muscles. I mean that thing inside you that loves what is evil. I've used this analogy before, but I think it's perfect. It's like, you know, when my kids were little, I didn't have to teach them how to steal lip gloss from each other. They just naturally do it. You know, when they were little, especially if we use the lip gloss that has the applicator, the stick thing that goes inside and it's got this gel stuff. If we introduce that into our four daughters' lives, murder would happen. We have to separate them and make sure that they didn't kill each other for this stuff. It's, it was amazing for them. And so they, they were just all about it. You don't have to teach people that. Because that's the flesh. The flesh says, I want it and I'm willing to take it from you and I'll take it away from you in order to give it to me. And so Amalek is a picture of that. It's a picture of your flesh. And what the flesh does is it exploits areas of weakness in your life, doesn't it? 
Your flesh knows where you're weak. Your flesh knows where you're tempted. You, that's why you're not tempted by certain things, but other things seem to just come your way all the time. That, that's why this temptation is, is before you. It exploits areas of weakness. I, th- I like to think of the flesh like a zombie version of me that's looking to chase me down and eat me alive. That's what it's doing. And, and I have a choice. I can kill it first or let it kill me. That's really all I can do. That's all you can do with the flesh. You can kill it first or you can let it kill you. It's not innocent. It's not your friend. You don't make room for it. You, you annihilate it. That's what you do with the flesh. Galatians 5.24 says it like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. That idea of their sinful nature, that's your flesh. What this is saying, what Galatians 2, uh, 5.24 is telling us is that we need to have our flesh nailed to the cross and we are the ones who need to do that. That as Jesus was nailed to the cross, so too we need to reckon our flesh as dead, as Romans chapter 6 says, that our flesh dies there with Jesus on the cross. Now look at, with me, if you would, at verse 4. It says this, So Saul gathered the people together, and numbered them in, the, uh, in Telem, uh, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to, the, to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, uh, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the, Amal- uh, the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, Saul gets to, uh, into immediate action. That's what we see take place. He hears this command. He gets into immediate action, starts gathering an army. And his stature has grown to the point to now where we see here he's gathered 210,000 men. This is mind-blowingly huge of an army compared to just a couple of chapters ago. In chapter 13, he could only get 3,000 guys. Now he's got a 21,000-man army, and uh, he's a, a 210,000-man army, sorry, uh, and he's, he's moving forward. And as he prepares for war, he gets to a city, and he realizes that there are some Kenites. Now, the Kenites are descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so they were very much friends of the Israeli people. And so he warns them and says, hey, you guys should leave. We're going to destroy the Amalekites, and we don't want you guys to get caught up in the middle of it. And so he doesn't want them to endure unnecessary judgment. Everything seems to be going really well for Saul. He's doing really great. He's gotten into immediate action. He's going where he should be at. He's, he's taking everything into his hands the right way. And then verse 7 comes. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." You see, Saul's obedience stops short of complete obedience. He obeys the Lord. He goes where he's supposed to go. He starts doing what he's supposed to do. And yet, there's a couple of things that stand out here. He spares the king. He says, this guy isn't going to die. Now, why does he spare the king? We're not told. I have no idea. Maybe it's like this kind of king bro thing. Hey, bro, I'm a king. You're a king. We'll 
We'll be cool to each other. I don't know. Maybe it's a trophy. Uh, who knows why he, uh, he does this, but he spares King Agag and he spares some of the livestock. Uh, but notice there what it says there at the end of verse 9. Uh, they were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything that was despised and worthless, they're like, yeah, just get rid of that stuff. But the good stuff were not willing. They were, it wasn't that they couldn't. It wasn't that they didn't. It's that they were unwilling. They were unwilling to destroy the stuff that was worthless. Alexander McLaren says it like this. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. So, some of you parents are like, I'm writing that down. I'm going to use Alexander McLaren on my kids this week. All right. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Saul and his men obeyed as far as suited them. That is to say, they did not obey God at all, but their own inclinations, both in sparing the good and destroying the worthless. What was not worth carrying off was destroyed, not because of the command, but to save trouble. Do you see how they've reduced God's command down to something that's just, well, you know, I will sort of partially obey, but it had nothing to do with obedience. It was just that they wanted to save trouble. God's judgment of good and bad was substituted for Saul's. That's what took place there. God doesn't get to decide what's good and bad. God doesn't get to decide what's worthless and what's not worthless. God isn't the one that gets to decide judgment coming or not coming. I'm going to, one that, I'm going to be the one that gets to decide that. And anytime we take God's spot, anytime we take his place, we sit in a, in a position of, uh, of placing ourselves under God's judgment instead of being a, a, a part of seeing his glory come. Not only do we see Saul's foolish rebellion, but we see in verses 10 through 23, his final rejection. Look at verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. God speaks to Samuel again, and this time it's not with direction for Saul, but rejection of Saul. It's not direction for Saul, it's rejection of Saul. And so, because Saul failed the test of obedience for the final time. This isn't the first time God's done this with Saul. This has been over and over and over again. It's not like he just messed up once. It's not like he just happened to go the wrong way. It's not like he had a stubborn heart that just rebelled against the Lord this one time and then he realizes that, oh no, and he comes back to the ways of God. No, this is a character flaw. This is a perpetual pattern in Saul's life that he is set against the things of God. And when God gives him direction, he's going to use that to try to do his thing and not go the way that God wants him to go. So God, essentially what he had done in all of this, was he, was he was inviting Saul into relationship with him. But Saul rejected the Lord and wouldn't follow him. He refused to do what was right. That, that, that God was saying, come with me, Saul. I want to lead you, Saul. I want to, I want to give you direction for your life. I want to see if you'll, are you willing to follow me in these, in these small things? Are you willing to follow me in these areas where I'm just giving you very clear direction? And if you're not willing to do that, then how in the world would God give you more direction in life? How in the world would God show you the next steps or show you even more difficult things to do if you won't do these? And so he, he fails to do what was right. James 4.17 says it like this. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It's, it's the sin of omission. When you know what's right and you don't do that, that is actually sinful. Well, that puts sin in a whole new category, doesn't it? 
Typically, we think of sin as the stuff that I do. I do do, if I can say it that way. The stuff that I do is the sin. Yes, that's true. There are sinful actions we take. But also our inaction can be sin as well. And that's what it was for Saul. And so, look at verse 13. Actually, verse 12. It says this. So when Samuel, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went, uh, went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. So not only does Saul sin in failing to do what he should do, but he also decides, hey guys, we're so awesome. Let's set up a monument to me for my disobedience, right? So they set up this monument, and he's uh, celebrating himself and celebrating this, this not real victory that he's claiming as a victory. Verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul sees Samuel coming and he gets up and he goes right to him and he greets him with a display of false spirituality and a proclamation of his own glory. Saul was only serving himself. He wasn't serving the Lord. He had no intention on doing the things of God. He was so self-absorbed that he was actually just doing what he thought he should do. And, and here's what's crazy. I think Saul actually thinks he's being obedient at this point. I think he's so self-deluded. I think he is so overcome with pride. I think he is so far gone that he really believes what he's saying. I think that's what's taking place within the heart of Saul. Warren Wearsby says this, serving God acceptably involves doing the will of God in the right way, at the right time, and for the right motive. Saul missed all of that. He was not, he was not serving God acceptably, and yet he was trying to claim that he did. There's not a hint of shame or guilt coming from Saul whatsoever. He is oozing with foolish arrogance. Notice Samuel's response in verse 14. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. What is going on here? So, so he gives this like proclamation of all his spirituality. Look how spiritual I am, Samuel. I am so honoring the Lord. And then Samuel's one question is, Then why do I hear sheep and oxen? What are you talking about? You have not done what God said. It's very, very clear. He, first, he lies there in verse 15 that they're basically, we're in the process of obedience. I mean, you know, we destroyed a lot of it, but we brought back some of these. We're going we're gonna to sacrifice them before the Lord, and so they'll be destroyed as well. We're, we're just in the process of obedience. It's just kind of a different way, and it's just not yet. We're, we're, we are being obedient. And then he blames the people. It's really, you know, I wanted to, to destroy them, but the people, it was really them they're the ones who, they, they wanted to, to control me, and I just, I couldn't say no, and, and so, you know, it's really their fault. Here's what's crazy. If you, were, if you were with us last week, you remember chapter 14, that Saul was so zealous for his own word, he was willing to execute his son for not obeying his word. But now when it comes to fulfilling and obeying God's word, he's got all these reasons and excuses to say why he doesn't have to do it. He is completely gone. His mind is so far gone that he actually thinks this is a good excuse, that he's making, he's making sense. He has no zeal for God's word whatsoever, though he has this crazy zeal for himself. 
I, I love what uh, Samuel says to him, verse 16. So Samuel said to him, be quiet. I love it. Can you just imagine that moment? <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't really know how it came across, but I imagine Samuel with like fire in his eyes. And it's like, I just want to whoop you, boy. You know, kind of a thing. Like, that, I, I imagine that's what's going on. It's, he's an old man. And he's like, I'm not dealing with this nonsense. You know, that's, that's kind of what I got going on. And he's grieved all night, right? We read that earlier in verse 12 uh, or 11. He was grieved. He cried out to the Lord. And now here he is trying to make this, make this sound like he's, he's honoring God. See, the truth, excuse me, let's read again. Verse 16, then Samuel said, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord has sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and, and do evil in the sight of the Lord? You see, the truth is being revealed and Saul is being exposed. God is seeking to lead Saul to the end of himself, to repentance, to abandon his pride. That's what God's doing in all of this. That's why Saul shows up. That's why he confronts him. That's why this is brought up. It's to say, this is your chance, Saul. You didn't do it. Let's repent. And now what does he do? No, he, he, he just makes more excuses. And so he says, what's going on? Saul was... In this, he says there in verse 17, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Do you remember back when Saul was anointed when he was chosen as king? And he said things like, I'm the smallest, you know, or my, my tribe's the smallest, or my family's the smallest in our tribe, and he was hiding among the equipment and everything. It's this sense of humility that was about Saul, but really there was no humility there at all. It was actually pride masquerading as humility. It was false humility. It was actually Saul's pride. When, when he said his family was the least in chapter 9, verse 21, that was, it was false humility. We pointed out there in chapter 9 that earlier in the chapter, it says that his family is actually very influential among that tribe. And then when in verse, uh, chapter 10 of verse 22, later on, when he was hiding on, on inauguration day, that wasn't that wasn't humility. Humility would have stepped into the moment the way that God was calling him to in a, in a way that honored the Lord, not hid in order to be so self-absorbed that you wouldn't do what God was calling you to do. You see, he never was uh, humble. He was always filled with pride. The massive root beneath the surface in Saul's life was pride. God sought to uproot this, this problem of pride many, many times, but Saul, every step of the way, refused it. And he actually protected his pride in order to keep it going. So James 4, 6 says it like this, and he gives grace generously. Also, as scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's a crazy thing. The idea of opposes there, it actually means to be at war with. God is at war with the proud. What that means is that when you choose pride, when you choose to build yourself up, when you choose to set yourself uh, in that prideful stance, you actually make yourself an enemy of God. That's just not a war I want to fight, right? Like, I, I, if there's an enemy I want to have, it's not Jesus. I don't want him fighting against me. He's going to win, and he's going to win decisively. Verse 19, notice it says there at the end that you did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
This is the only way to, deci- to describe evil, is that it is in the sight of the Lord. Even though Saul thought it wasn't a big deal, God saw it. He saw his attitude, he saw his action, he saw his inaction, and he saw it all as evil. Evil is only what God determines as evil. We don't get to decide it. Only the Lord does. Verse 20 says this, And Saul said to Samuel, so here's Saul's response to all this, But I have obeyed the Lord, the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. You see, Saul rejects Samuel's rebuke and the Lord's conviction and hardens his position of innocence. Even though his disobedience is on clear display. That, that, imagine when you're, when you're Samuel, you show up there. You can see the, the livestock. You can hear the livestock. And if you've been around livestock, you can smell the livestock. It's all clearly on display to Samuel, right? But Saul, he's, he's totally blind to it. He has no idea that it's even, he's just, he thinks there's no big deal. They're like, what are you talking about? This stuff isn't even a, a big deal at all. Because what's clear to Saul or to Samuel is hidden from Saul. Why? Because of his pride. Alexander McLaren says this. He, Saul, doggedly says over uh, again all that he had said before. Unmoved by the prophet's solemn words, he is stealing his heart against reproof. And there is only one end to that. Sin unacknowledged after God has disclosed it is doubly sin. The heart that answers the touch of God's rebukes by sullenly closing more tightly on its evil is preparing itself for the blow of the hammer which will crush it. And that's exactly what's going to take place in Saul's life. God is saying, that is sin. You need to let go of it. You need to, you need to remove this. And he says, no, it's not sin. It's actually good. It's actually what I should do. It's, it's just the way that I, it's the, the way the world would say, it's just the way that I've been made. It's just the way that I am. God needs to accept me as I am. And as you close your hand over sin more, it sets you up for more of a crushing blow. Saul, now in verse 20, he actually admits to moral disobedience. Did you see that? He says in verse 20, uh, I did obey. And he says, well, you know, I, I brought back Agag, king of the Amalekites. He didn't say that before. Now he admits to more sin. You see, um, when people are caught in sin, it's almost always worse than what they're willing to admit. Sin will cover up more sin. That's usually what it does. If you're caught in sin, then you're probably going to try to cover up more sin that you have in your life. And, And here's what I'll say. It's just not worth it. It's better for you to come out and reveal your sin than to be caught in it. It's better for you to unveil it than to have someone else unveil it for you. Saul didn't destroy the Amalekites. He didn't do it. And, and he didn't think it was a big deal. But it actually ends up being a huge, huge deal. Because here's what happens. Not, this guy, Agag, isn't the only guy from the Amalekites that escaped. I wonder if in Saul having the, the Kenites leave the city earlier, I wonder if some of the Amalekites escaped then. I wonder if as Saul 
took the king captive, it gave permission to his men to not fully obey the things of the Lord, which is why they took the animals in the first place. It wasn't their fault. It was Saul's leadership. And so I wonder if then some of the men escaped there. Some of the the Amalekites escaped there. Because later on in chapter 30, what we'll see, you know, in like three years when we get there, uh, 1 Samuel 30, that David, that was, never mind. David ends up... (laughs) It was funny to me. David ends up fighting the Amalekites in chapter 30. At the end of Saul's life, uh, spoiler alert, 1 Samuel ends with Saul's death. And we find out in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it was an Amalekite that delivered the final blow. Saul dies from an Amalekite. Even later, centuries later in the book of Esther, in chapter 3, the villain Haman, Haman, we are told, is a descendant of Agag. You see, when you don't deal with your flesh completely, it always comes back. It always comes back. And it may come back in ways that cost you everything, just like it cost Saul, even his life. And it may cost generations later down the road. It may cost your family different things because of your undealt with flesh, your undealt with sin. It's, it's just not worth it. Saul's trying to say how he's so obedient, but he never, he wasn't even close. He wasn't even close to obeying the things of the Lord. Verse 22, so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul's self-justification is all, uh, is that, excuse me, Saul's self-justification is that all of what he has deemed uh, as the good stuff was only saved so that they could sacrifice it later to worship God. Right? He says, we, just, we saved all the good stuff just so we could sacrifice. We just wanted to worship God with this later. And Samuel's response is to prioritize worship. That when we have a priority of worship, obedience is above sacrifice. Sacrifice, yes, is an act of worship. We can sacrifice to the Lord. We can make uh, different kinds of sacrifices before the Lord of time and talent and treasure and all sorts of things. But if sacrifice comes above obedience, it's no longer worship to God. Obedience must be in the first place. Obedience is what must be prioritized. Obedience and sacrifice are both parts of worship, but obedience must always be prioritized above everything else. You see, the issue is God is after your heart, not just your actions. You can go through all the right motions and have the wrong heart, and it's not honorable to God. It's very easy to do such a thing. You see, Saul's sin is revealed here. It's not a failure to kill Amalekites. It's not keeping animals. Notice there what it says in verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. That was his sin. It wasn't the failure to to carry through what God said. It was failure to even listen to what God said and therefore carry it through. He rejected God's word. You see, Saul's rejection of God's word was his great sin. 
And I would say in many churches today, and I, I would even use that term loosely, quote unquote churches today, what we have is a lot of people going through the motions of r- rituals and routines and religious stuff, and they have no regard for God's word whatsoever. They, they've decided that God's word is the same as anybody else's word. They've, decide that, they've decided that this is just something that's an uh, revelation of God, that you could take it or leave it, that it's just as good as what any uh, Hindu would say or Muslim would say or Buddhist would say or any random person around the street would say, that God's word is degraded, that God's word is put down, and then, and then they think they're going through the motions of worship and God accepts that? Absolutely not. No. God does not receive our worship when we do that. God does not accept our sacrifice when we do that. Because when we reject God's word, we're rejecting him. We're not just rejecting a book. We're rejecting the Lord. And we can't do that and think that we're somehow in this place of being able to worship the Lord. Thirdly and finally, not only Saul's foolish rebellion, his final rejection, but his false repentance is shown to us in verses 24 through 35. Look at verse 24. It says this, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So You see, Saul had previously lost his dynasty. That's what happened in the, uh, the previous chapter. God said, your family isn't going to be, a, be able to sit on the throne any longer or be a part of the dynasty any longer. And now, because his, he's continued down the road of pride, and arrogance, he loses the kingdom too. God says, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. You've been rejected as king. And if Saul would have stopped with the first part of verse 24, where he says, I have sinned and transgressed the commandment of the Lord. If he would have just stopped there, everything would have been great. That, that's all that he had to say. That, that when we're coming to the Lord and saying, saying I, I've sinned, that's it. That's all. Just, Lord, I have, I have done what you said was evil. I have failed to do what you say is good. That's, that's repentance. That's where it goes right there. And then you say, God, would you forgive me and change me? And the reason we get to do that, the reason we have access to be able to do this with God is because Jesus goes to the cross, bleeds and dies, taking the punishment for our sin so that all we need to do is confess that we have sinned and receive the forgiveness of Jesus' blood washing us clean. It's this miraculous spiritual thing that only God can do. But when we want to also bring our excuses, it dilutes our repentance. It's not even really repentance at that point. God, I did this, but you know the reason why I um, ran that person off the road and they wrecked their car is because I'm a redhead. And you just know that I got this fiery temper. And so that's not repentance. That's an excuse. That's an excuse. We, we need to actually come to the Lord with true repentance because through that re- repentance comes restoration. You see, God's declaration of judgment is always an invitation to repent. That's what this was. Why do you think God is saying to Saul, you are going to receive judgment? It's a, it's a, it's a welcome. It's an invitation. Saul, just, just come to the end of yourself. Just repent. When God brings this before us, it's an invitation to repent. But Saul, he offers excuses instead, and it reveals that his, his repentance isn't genuine. Verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin, that's what he's saying to, to Samuel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. 
and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned around to go away, and Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or, nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. You see, Saul, he wants Samuel, he wants his pardon and he wants his approval, but he wants to get it by bat- bypassing the road of repentance. He, just say, he says, oh, I'm so sorry. Would you come with me to the sacrifice uh, to worship the Lord? What do you think they're going to sacrifice at the sacrifice? The animals that they shouldn't even freaking have, right? Like, what is going on with you, Saul? What are you thinking? And so he's, he's going to, and Samuel's like, I'm not going to put my stamp of approval on your false worship. What do you think this is? No, I'm not going with you. You rejected the Lord. No. And so he won't go with him this way. He's, he's just saying, I'm, uh, this is just not how it goes. Saul wanted the appearance of God's blessing on his life. That's all he's looking for. He didn't actually want God's blessing, which is accessed only through repentance. He just wanted the appearance. He wanted to look good in front of everybody else. And so an object lesson comes as he reaches out and grasps for Samuel. Samuel, don't leave me. You know, here's this king, almighty and powerful. He just destroyed the people of the Amalekites. And as Samuel walks away, he's falling over to grab after his robe and he rips part of it off. And Samuel turns around, I believe anointed of the Lord, uses it as an object lesson as God speaks right through him and says, just like you tore that, you ripped my robe, God is ripping the kingdom away from you. And that's exactly what we see happen play out through the rest of 1 Samuel. As Saul continues to grip the kingdom more tightly to hold onto it in his own strength, it doesn't mean he gets to keep it. He isn't stronger than God. It's going to be torn away and it's just going to hurt him worse. When you close your hand around things in your life, they may be good and they may be bad, but when you hold onto things in your life with a closed fist, God, God will sometimes remove those things. And it doesn't mean that you get to keep them just because you're holding on to them tightly. It just means it hurts when God takes it. But if we'll learn to open our hands and allow God to put whatever he wants in there and take whatever he wants out of there, he's sovereign, he's God, he's in control, he's good, he's the one that's able to do such things. When we learn to hold things with an open hand, then God can put things in and take them out as he wills. And it no longer hurts. Then I'm submitted to the lordship of Jesus. I'm submitted to his way and his rule. And God declares in verse 29 there, it says that it's, it's an interesting verse. It's the only time in the Bible where God's referred to this way as the strength of Israel. It says that he will not lie or relent. It, this, declare, this declaration, essentially verse 29, it's permanent. You're not going to change this. You don't get, there's no way out of this. Saul, you have passed the point of no return. You have hardened your heart so far in this moment that it's too far. And so this rebuke that comes to Saul is that God is the strength, not you. Remember that monument you set up to your own awesomeness, Saul? That wasn't your strength that destroyed the Amalekites. It was mine, God says. I'm the strength of Israel, not you. Not some king, but the Lord. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. See that in his heart? Still, even in this moment, all he wants is honor. I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel returned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came. 
came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. You're like, great for Mother's Day. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. This whole, ter- this whole thing took a crazy turn. Saul again in verse 30 makes a declaration of false repentance and his only concern is that he's gonna look, what is he gonna look like in front of everybody else? He's trying to just maintain appearances and manipulate the situation. David Guzik says it like this. Friends, one could make a thousand sacrifices unto God. You could work a thousand hours for God's service or give a million dollars to his work. But all those sacrifices mean little if there's not a, a, a surrendered heart to God shown by simple obedience. It doesn't matter how much stuff you do if there's no heart of obedience. If it's just a cover for a false heart, that heart will be exposed. God will expose it. And when it's exposed, you can either harden yourself in your foolishness or choose to follow the way of the Lord. Abandon yourself. Abandon your way. Samuel decides in verse uh, 33, excuse me, verse um, uh, 32 to go back uh, to, the, to the worship thing. But notice there that Samuel doesn't participate in the worship service. Uh, even though he goes back, he's, he's shown going back but not participating. And Agag thinks he survived, you know, the warrior king Saul. So he's certain that this old prophet's, you know, he's, he's not going to do anything. But Samuel literally hacks him to pieces. I mean, this is, it is a brutal, bloody display that's going on here. He just takes it out on this guy. Ezekiel 33, 11, before, like you're reading this, you're like, man, this is crazy. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wick, of, of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, Turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? You see, there is nothing good or pleasing about the Amalekites or even Agag here being executed for their sin, even though it's still the right consequence. There's nothing pleasurable about it. There's nothing good about it. This is where God is so much different and so much better than we are, isn't he? Aren't there times when someone, someone who is vile and evil, they die and you're like, yeah, that's good. I know I felt like that a lot of times. Maybe when bin Laden was, was uh, executed, maybe when he was killed, maybe, I know I was like, yeah, good, finally we got him. Uh, maybe there's times when, when somebody gets something you know, bad that happens in their lives and you're, you're privately, you know, not, not outwardly, you're like excited. Yes, they finally got theirs, that jerk, right? That's, that's the way that we tend to be, but God is not like us. He says there's no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He only wants repentance, He only wants us to turn from ourselves and before our sin. And notice there how Samuel does this. It says he hacks him in pieces there, but notice at the the very end, before the Lord. That phrasing is vitally important, before the Lord. You see, he didn't do this before Saul. That's not what he did. He wasn't saying to Saul, this is how you do it, bro. This is how you take care of it. It's not to prove a point. It's not to say, Saul, you didn't do it, so I did it. Uh, it, It's not before Saul. It's not before Israel. It's not before the people of Israel. It's not the the prophet saying, you chose this dumb king, and you should have stuck with me because I'm a better leader. Look, I actually do the right things. 
It wasn't before Israel. It wasn't even before himself, as if he took some sort of pleasure in this. Like, I just couldn't wait to kill myself an Amalekite. It's just, there's, there's nothing about this that's before any of that. It was before the Lord. It was purely an act of obedient worship. That's all it was. Verse 34 and 35, then Samuel went to Ramah, which, by the way, God's not going to tell you to hack anybody in pieces, just in case you're wondering. That's not from the Lord. If you, I got a verse now. No, you don't. That's just not... That was the Old Testament, okay? We can talk later if you have an issue with that. We'll call the police too. All right, verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted they had made Saul king over Israel. These, these two cities of uh, Ramah and, and uh, Gibeah, um, they're 10 miles apart. And Saul never humbled himself to come to Samuel and make things right. Never in the rest of his life. And from this moment on, it's going to be about 25 years. 25 years. And he never humbles himself. He further hardens himself in pride. Warren Wearsby says this, King Saul had lost his dynasty, his character, and his throne, and his crown. He had also lost a godly friend, speaking of Samuel. When David appears on the scene, Saul will lose his self-control and his good sense, and eventually he'll lose his last battle and his life. All of this loss for Saul was singularly because he refused to hear, honor, and obey the word of God. That's all it is. He wouldn't hear the word of God. He wouldn't obey the word of God. He wouldn't hear the, uh, honor and hear the word of God. Saul is, uh, is undoubted, undoubtedly rejected as the king. There's no, there's no doubt about it at all. And yet it's going to take about 25 years, just short of 25 years, for him to be removed and replaced. Why in the world would it take so long? Why would this be the, the, the place? Because right here, this is where we, where we end with Saul as the main character. Next week we're going to get into David and start moving forward in that, that storyline. But Saul is no longer the main character right now. And yet, he's going to remain on the throne for nearly 25 years. Well, I'll give you at least two reasons why this took so long. Number one, God had his replacement set. God had the replacement ready to go. And yet, the replacement needed some training. David was waiting in the wings. David was ready to be raised up. He had no idea. He's just some kid taking care of sheep at this time. But he, he was ready to be raised up. And you know how long it was going to take God to train David to be the right kind of man? about 25 years. God needed to train him, and God was actually going to use Saul and his crazy as a tool to train David. That's part of what he was going to do. That's one reason. Secondly, because God's timing is God's timing. We are usually in a much bigger hurry than God is. But here's what I want to tell you. If you're in a moment of waiting, if you're in that in-between, if you're in the place of the already but not yet, Right? David is going to be anointed as king, and it's going to take him 25 years to become king. If you're in the middle of the already not yet, God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. God has not just left you and shelved you and, and just decided, you know what? You're just not worth it. No, God is at work. He is moving. He is moving on your behalf and, and for you, and you can trust him in the process. You see, obedience to God is not possible by trying really hard. You don't need to become a cleaned up version of yourself. You need to be a redeemed version of you. 
a, a, a bought a blood-bought version of you, bought by the blood of Jesus. Your only hope is in recognizing that you're dead and only Jesus can make you alive through his sacrifice. That's, that's really what it all comes down to, that he's given his life for you. And this reality is simultaneously how you get into the family of God and it's how you continue to grow and find depths of freedom in him. This is where Saul failed and this is where David succeeded. This is where they're contrasted that they found their hope in the Lord or Saul found him, his hope in himself. And so the question comes to us, what will we do? Will we be a people who follow the path of Samuel and arrogance and pride and cover up and, and deceit and try to just make excuses and shift blame? Or will we come to the Lord and say, God, will you clean me and make me new? Will you make me like you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to give our attention to it. And we pray that you would bring your comfort to us where we need it and your conviction where we need it, that we may be made more in your image. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.